Well, we're coming to the end, close to the end of our study of 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 4. You can be turning there right now. Our theme has been, well, the theme of 2 Timothy has been finishing well. How do we finish well? That's what we titled it, is how to finish. And finishing well, that's a principle that all of us resonate with on some level. We all get the idea of what it means to finish well. Even if you're not thinking about it currently, there's some areas in which you do think about it. So Cowboys fans, you hear me? Finishing well. Wouldn't you rather go to the playoffs at 9-7 and seven as a wild card and win the Super Bowl rather than finish the series season at 12-4 and four and then lose first round again? Wouldn't you rather have that? Wouldn't you rather finish well? Parents with teenagers, would you rather have your kids finish well, or are you okay with them starting the year with A's and B's and ending with D's and F's? But they had A's and B's at the beginning, right? Will we accept that? Investors, are you happy with your stock today that's down 30 points? Because a few months ago it used to be up 30 points? Do we, are we okay with that? Do we like that? And, and then Astros fans, what was our biggest fear going into the World Series? Was it hitting? No. Was it starting pitching? No. It was closers. How are we ever going to get out of a game? How are we going to finish the game? That was the biggest fear, right? So this resonates with us, the idea of being able to finish well. See, early on in my ministry, I admired the young, excited, energized guy with the big ministry, the loud presence in the room. I looked up to that kind of guy because he had a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, seemed like the ideal role model. But then a piece of of advice that my dad gave me years prior came to ring very true in the present when he said, Stuart, a lot of the time we assume that the most excited and the loudest guy is also the most right. And that is very often not the case. It was true. And as the years went on, I just kind of started seeing men like that flame out in the ministry. They would just kind of peter out, either by sin or just some other kind of grand humbling. And then I started looking at the old guys. Well, it's not the young guys who are excited and loud, and it's the old guys who are a little more seasoned. Maybe they've paid their dues. They've kind of put in their time into the ministry. Let me, let me look, at, look up to those guys. It seems like the ideal role model, just the mere fact of extended time in the ministry. But then I started noticing a lot of old guys, you know, older men in ministry, that they would divert in one of two ways. The first way being that they would either they would get sour and frustrated with everybody but themselves that everybody was wrong but them. Or they would get so lazily entitled that they would say and do whatever they wanted because they put in their company time and now they've earned it. And so that was starting frustrating. Then I started looking to Scripture for this. Like, let's just, should have started there, but let's go to Scripture now and let's look at this idea of finishing well, this life of serving God. And I started seeing the same pattern. I mean, just go down the men who spoke for God in Scriptures. Let's Moses. Starts out in Pharaoh's house. He's prominent, ready to go. Then he kills a guy. Then he ends up in the wilderness. And then he becomes the voice of, of victory, the voice of Exodus, the one given the law to write down. But then he gets frustrated with the people and he whacks a rock and then he ends up dying alone on a hill, not allowed to go into the promised land. And then you look at, you look at Samson. He's blessed by God from birth with uncanny strength, with godly, godly parents. Three easy rules to keep. He keeps none of them. He marries a prostitute, leaves her, sleeps with another prostitute, then ends up blind with no eyes and full of pride and dead. And then you get to Saul, 
Saul is hand-chosen by God. He prophesies early on. Everybody loves him. They think that he's awesome. And then he can't keep one simple ceremonial law. And then he ends up dead and pegged to a wall by four spears in a foreign land. David, man after God's own heart, he's empowered by God to conquer all of Israel's enemies. He expands their borders. He increases their wealth. He brings back religious order, but he refuses to order his own home. And he has a son who rapes his own daughter and then overthrows him. And then he dies, though he had many wives, in a very lonely state. And then his son after him is Solomon, who's granted the greatest wisdom that any human being has ever had, more wisdom than we could ever imagine, more riches than we could ever imagine, brings prosperity to the people of God like they've never seen since. And yet he marries a thousand foreign women, introduces idolatry into the nation, and his sons split the kingdom and he dies in embarrassment. And then Uzziah, another king, he's king at 16 years old and he's scared to death. He trusts God. God brings victory. He brings peace, brings prosperity. So Uzziah wins a few battles. He creates a few military advancements technologically. And then he gets so cocky, he thinks that he can blow off all of God's law and walk right in the temple and do whatever he wants. And then he dies in shame and embarrassment. And then Jonah. Jonah's told to evangelize a pagan people. Don't know God at all. He rebels and runs away because he's a racist. And then God gets a hold of them supernaturally by a giant fish that spits him out. He preaches a simple gospel message. An entire city, nation, state comes to Christ. And then he pouts and throws a fit. And then the story just ends. So where is the example of the guy who finishes well? Where, where is that in Scripture? I mean, we got we to we find it. So I began to realize that, that finishing well, I mean, that may be the most difficult thing that we've been given to do in this Christian life. Finishing well. Now, I can't tell you how many men and women that I know of my generation, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older, who when they started having their own kids, their parents, the grandparents of their kids, just kind of chucked it. They quit living to the moral structures that they had placed on their own kids. And they're kind of just seven sweet nuts to the wind. They're just going to do whatever they want. They're, they're, not, they're not paying attention to, to anything. They're not they're striving to anything. Not playing to the highest standard. They're kind of grazed, grazed into this pathetic version of spiritual retirement. And it happens to all of us. So now when I meet with an older man in the ministry, you know what how I ask what I ask him? I ask him, how do you finish well? I don't ask them, how do you grow your church to be huge? I don't ask them, how do you get your book published? I ask them, how do you finish well? How do you go wire to wire, glorifying God with all that you say and do, with all that your life is and all that your ministry is? How do you do that? How are you planning on doing that? So I ask the guy. You get a lot of different answers when you ask that kind of question. But then we come across 2 Timothy 4. So we ask all these questions and we see all of this and we resonate with all of this. People who start well and finish terribly. And we see that in our own lives. We fear that in our own lives. But then we come across 2 Timothy 4, 6, 7, and 8. And we get to see it really be manifest in somebody's lives. Paul has finished and he has no reason to be embarrassed. And this is the inspired word of God. Thus it is true. And he's just a mere human being. So therefore, it can be done. We're going to see that in Paul's life here, that this is the end goal for all Christians, and it is a lofty goal. 
Paul writes his own epitaph here. And, and if we would do well to humbly not assume that we are this, even Charles Spurgeon would say, I, I am not able to say what the apostle was able to say of himself. But yet, nonetheless, after Charles Spurgeon dies, that's what's written on his very tomb. Because he did finish well. He did fight the good fight and finish the race. And this passage links together. So this is the reality of the ending of one life and the launching, essentially, of another life in ministry. This is going to link to Timothy. Timothy, you have to keep pursuing the finishing of this life, the perfecting of the faith, the guarding of the gospel, the making of disciples, the preaching of the word. You have to do that because Paul is dying. See, we as Christians, we continue to press on. We don't just say, oh, we had good leaders right now. They're going to die. So Paul's saying, Timothy, you got to follow. you got to do this because I'm, I'm done. I've finished. So we're perpetually following behind the faithful generation that comes ahead of us, ready to take up the mantle of passionately pursuing the glorification of God with every square inch of the globe. Have you ever thought about that, the passing of the mantle? You heard that phrase before? You know, that's an intrinsically biblical phrase. When Elijah ascends, what falls to the ground that Elisha picks up? His mantle. And then what does Elisha do? He walks back across the river and goes back to the same people to be the ministry, the voice of God to the people. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy in these passages. So let's look at these three verses today. Just these three verses. Verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I am already being poured out. In Paul's mind, his death is imminent. I'm already, it has begun. My death march has begun. He will not escape his current imprisonment. If you're just joining us today, Paul is in, a, in prison for the last time, and he knows he's not getting out. So he knows that this death is imminent. He's already being poured out. But this isn't the first time he's used that imagery of being poured out. He's used it before in a time where he was in prison and he was going to get out. In Philippians 2, 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even if. So how can we understand what this idea of a drink offering is? Well, let's take Philippians 2, 17 and try to make us understand further 2 Timothy 4, 6. He says, Even if. I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad. So if it was a good thing and an easy thing, it would be redundant to say, I am glad. If it was a good thing and an easy thing, he wouldn't have to say, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. So we can assume that being poured out is painful, it hurts. What Paul's talking about, this is his very life, that a maximum price is being paid. And he's more than willing to pay it for these Philippians to see them grow, to be converted, and then to grow. So then you bring it back to our context in 2 Timothy 4, that I am already being poured out. Here it is. This is the end. This is, this is the end of the line. This is Paul's very life. But what is a drink offering? You study your Old Testament before he came today. Leviticus 23 and Numbers 15 talk about a drink offering. It was associated with a festival of first fruits. But what happened is you would have a burnt offering. You would have a grain offering. You'd have a wave offering. After these series of offerings that were laid out, the drink offering was the last thing. 
and you, it would be a mixture of wine and kind of oil, and you would pour it out real slow after everything had already been laid out. After all the other sacrifices had been made, the drink offering was the last one in, no, in Numbers 15. This was to be done when the people of God came into the promised land also. So you see that significance tied to it. That God says, when you come into my land, this is what you do. The promised land, when you're there, when you've arrived, that's what you do. And Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The journey as aliens and strangers in foreign lands was over when the drink offering came. The drink offering was a symbol of joy, but it wasn't the main thing. It was just the accent on it. Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. He says, now Paul does not venture to call himself an offering. Christ is his offering. Christ is, so to speak, the sacrifice on the altar. He compares himself to that little wine and oil poured out as a supplement. He's just the accent. And who's the one doing the pouring? Is Paul saying, I am pouring myself out as a drink offering? What's the context there? It says, I am being poured out. He is passive in this. He has completely and totally submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ into his own life. And it says, do what you will with me. And he has now seen that it is time to be poured out, Paul. It is time to be poured out. God has seen fit to use him as a drink offering to just slightly accent the true sacrifice, the redeeming sacrifice of his son, Jesus. See, Jesus is the lamb that was slain on the altar for us. We, as his people, are mere joyful drink offerings that just accent, highlight, are added to, but not the substance of the redemption. Just excitingly celebrating. That's what Paul calls himself. In the end of verse 6, he says, and the time of my departure has come. Let's not move too quickly past that little phrase because there's a lot in there. The time of my departure has come. Time is the Greek word kairos. And what kairos means, it doesn't mean like the clock ran out. It means that there was a specific moment where an event was supposed to occur. So that's what Paul's saying about his death, that there was a specific appointed time to die chosen by God. And Paul's saying that time is now. God has chosen it, and here it is. This is the kairos. This is the time for me to die. And we know this from other passages in Scripture. I remember Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. God has designated all that happens under the sun. Hebrews 9, 27, and it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. God has chosen that time for the event in all of our lives. And Paul says that my time has come. But time for what? He doesn't say death. He doesn't say execution. He doesn't say martyrdom. What does he say? He says, my departure, my analusis in Greek, my departure. And analusis is an interesting word because what it means at its purest level is just a loosening. It, mean, it means a, like a letting go. What it's used most often as, as you're unlashing the moorings of a ship. You're untying the ship from the dock. Or you're cutting the rope that holds the anchor. That's what that word departure means. The time for my departure has come. Paul's used that word in other contexts as well. Also in Philippians 1, 20 through 24, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, 
but that with full, occur- with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to move on, to be loosed, and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So when you hear the word departure, we're not thinking an ending think of departure, I think of airplanes. Where airplanes, when they're departing, what are they doing? Are they just going to vanish in the thin atmosphere? No, they're going to land somewhere else, right? And the unmooring of a ship, it's not just setting it out to be scuttled. That ship is going somewhere else. You can't see it from here, but that ship is going somewhere else. That's what Paul's calling his death, to departure, going to somewhere else that we can't see right now. That's how we need to think about it. That's how Paul thinks about it. And where's, he, where's his destination? Is to be with Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. To depart and be with Christ is very much better. And then he summarizes his life in verse 7. Let's look at this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Fought the good fight, finishing a race, and keeping the faith. Past tense. They're, they're done. I fought the good fight. Like the soldier. Remember the illustration in chapter 2, 3, and 4? Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The soldier of Christ, he engaged in the right battle, the only battle worth fighting. Paul says, I fought the good fight, the one for the renown of the king of kings. And he has already charged Timothy to do this very thing, to fight the good fight twice in his previous letter. In 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, wage the good warfare. In 1 Timothy 6.12, he says, fight the good fight. Timothy, do this. And now he says that he has done it. That at the end of his life, he says, young man, I'm here to tell you that it can be done. Some of us get bogged down in the details of Scripture, don't we? Or in the commands of Scripture. They sound so daunting. They sound so big. They sound impossible. I can't can't possibly do that. You say these grand things, but there's no way that I could do that. To realize how thick they are. But how encouraging would it be to hear from your father, your mother in the faith, your real mother, be they Christians or not, your real father, that I'm here to tell you it can be done. All that I've told you to do, Timothy, it is possible to look back on your life without embarrassment. Just look at my own life as an example. How encouraging would that be to hear from that person in your life? I feel no remorse or regret of the way that I've lived. I know I'm about to be face-to-face with Jesus, but I'm not embarrassed. Everything that I trained you to do, young men, for the glory of Christ, it can be done till the end of your life. You can do it. Don't you want to be able to say that to your own kids or to the people that you've discipled, your brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters in the faith, that I don't have to, I don't have, to have this embarrassing deathbed confession? But I can say, I fought the good fight. And be honest about it. Paul's just a regular human, and he's saying this. This would be encouraging to young Timothy, and he says, I finished the race like the athlete in chapter 2, verse 5, right? Or 2, verse 6, rather. You recall in Acts 20, when Paul was talking to the elders of the church that Timothy's the pastor of in Ephesus? What does he say when he says, this is my one goal in life? In Acts 20, verse 24, 
He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He said, I don't care about my life at all. It has no value to me at all. The only thing that I want to do is finish my course. And now Paul can say that the mission of his life is the summary of his life. Because he said, I have finished the race. The summary of his life. He accomplished the mission. He completed the mission of his life. All he wanted to do was finish the race that his Savior had laid out for him. He wasn't trying to stack up accolades and outrank anybody. He just wanted to finish. And he finished. He did finish. There's nothing left for him to do on earth. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean world. He preached the gospel every single place that he went. He trained men for the ministry. He wrote over half of the New Testament. And all from a guy who began his ministry trying to end and eliminate and exterminate all that was Christian. And that guy can say at the end of his life, I finished my race. We should all desire, we should all desire to collapse into heaven, bloody and sweaty and out of breath and exhausted. We should all desire that. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul. So I say, I've finished my race and I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Like the guardian he told Timothy to be in chapter 1, verse 14. Timothy, guard the good deposit. Paul says, I have kept it. I have guarded it. He has done that. And what does it mean to do this? Does it mean that Paul kept his faith in God all the way up to the end and thus his life was sealed and his salvation was sealed by his own actions? No, of course not. Jude uses the faith here as to mean, Jude uses the faith in chapter 1, verse 3 of Jude to refer to the entirety of the Christian belief system. That's what Paul's using it here as well in the same way that he has remained consistent with the Christian doctrines as revealed in Scripture through a life that was lived consistently with them. Paul never conceded on a point of biblical clarity in his life. He never conceded. He never wavered in resiliency to biblical truth under the pressure of the culture, under the pressure of immature Christians. And it's most easy to cave to pressure when it's coming from within your own camp, isn't it? We want so badly to have a tribe that when from within our tribe we are pressured toward a liberal position on the scriptures, it's easy to cave because I just want to stay a part of the group. And Paul can say, I never did that. And it cost him. We'll see next week that Demas left him over that. Paul lived consistently with his own charge that he gave the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He obeyed that. He lived that. He sprinted through the tape. See, too often we get caught between two things that are bad. We get caught between victim theology or vainglorious theology. See, victim theology endlessly sputters topics like brokenness, 
inner woundedness and downtrodden spirits and et cetera. And, and the individual is always a victim. And God just wants you to lean into your brokenness and your sadness. All they talk about is getting hurt and being hurt. But on the other side of that coin is vainglorious theology. Vainglorious theology rambles on brashly about your own accomplishments and your ability to summon the supernatural at will to vanquish the darkness as your own hero. So that's vaingloriousness, that we somehow have powers equal to Jesus himself and we can summon those powers. All they talk about is spiritual machismo. What Paul models here in verse 7 is victor theology. It is not vainglorious And he is not victimized because not of his own strength and zeal, but because of Christ is he victorious. And the same is true for you and I. In Romans 8, Paul says in 35 and 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, we are conquerors. Why? Because Jesus has loved us, not because we are strong. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul's a proponent of victor theology, not because he is strong, but because Christ is strong, has accomplished all on his behalf. Where is the sting of death? Where is it? It's gone. It's been removed by Christ. See, the problem with victim theology is that it's all about you and wallowing in your brokenness. And the problem with vainglorious theology is also it's all about you, but reveling arrogantly in this kind of false machismo. But the beauty of victor theology is that's all about Christ. You don't factor into the end result at all, except for you are the conduit through which Jesus Christ is going to glorify himself. And that's how Paul can say, without any arrogance, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Because he knows it's not him. And then henceforth, in verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, do you hear the joy in those words? Hear them. Hear the joy in those words. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It is there. It is waiting, laid up for me. And that crown of righteousness, what is the crown of righteousness? James calls it a crown of life. But this crown of righteousness, what is this? It represents eternal righteousness, i.e., the righteousness that Jesus Christ accomplished and then imputes to those who believe in him on faith, gives them his righteousness, the moment above belief. See, Paul can honestly say, hear the joy here. Paul can honestly say that upon his death, when he stands before who? What does verse 8 say? The Lord, the righteous judge. When he stands before the all-seeing scrutiny of Jesus Christ, 
he'll still be rewarded the crown of life. Is, is that not preposterous? That after Jesus fully vets me, fully judges me, look at everything that I've ever done into my essence of who I am, he's still going to award me the crown of righteousness, eternal life. Why would he do that? For no reason, but because he's not evaluating me upon what I've done and who I am. Because who I am is a filthy sinner, and what I've done is rebel against him. But thanks be to God that we can be found in Christ and faith alone. See, this is unthinkable joy. When people want to feel comfortable in their own sin, what do they often say? You hear the words, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Really, do you want to have said that? So you're going to forego all moral evaluation by finite human beings and you're going to defer to a later point in time when you will be judged by the infinite, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-scrutinizing God of the universe. That's what you're going to postpone to? And if you were a criminal, what lawyer would ever take that case? Only God can judge me, please. Yeah, that's true, yes. But will you survive that judgment? See, Paul can say, not that after that judgment, after he's been thoroughly vetted and pierced through into the deepest, darkest parts of his heart, Jesus is still going to give him the crown of righteousness. Can you believe that? Can, can you believe that? And he knows he's going to survive that judgment. And not only will he survive it, he will become, he will come out on the other side blessed for eternity after that judgment. Have we grasped the preposterousness of this verse today? Have we, why on earth would God ever award me anything? I can't think of a single reason why. But Paul's saying he's going to be awarded the crown of righteousness because what have I done in and of my own initiative and in and of my own strength that could ever cause the creator of the universe to stand up, clap, and then give me an award? What have I ever done that could ever merit that? From the one who speaks and worlds appear. But Paul says that's what's going to happen. He will receive the crown of righteousness by this judge. You know, the fact is that God hasn't and won't award you based on what you have done. He will award you based upon what Christ has done. See, he grants this crown of righteousness according to his mercy, not according to anything else. Titus 3.5, what does Titus 3.5 say? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's how we are saved. That's how Paul can go into this death. And here's where it gets even more preposterous. It's not just for people who are dubbed apostles. It's not just for people who are the disciples of apostles. Do you see how verse 8 ends? Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All who have loved his appearing. Everyone who loves Christ, and thus symbolic, what was speaking there of, has faith in Christ. As the sovereign Lord 
and the king of kings of all that is, that person will have submitted to his lordship in such a way that before the great day, they had done that before the great day, that those who love Christ, all who love Christ, will be awarded that crown of righteousness. All who love Christ, not some, not the good ones, not the varsity, all who have loved his appearing, who look forward to that day. What great joy can we find in that verse? But isn't this still about death, right? Isn't Paul on death row? I want to push in a little bit here towards the end on our understanding of death. Do you believe that the purpose of the church and the purpose of the Bible is to instruct you and help you have a better life, that that's the end goal, have a better life? Or is the purpose of the church and the purpose of the Bible to teach us and to help us how to die? If that's the end, because Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31 says, when there was rancorous false teaching going on, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. And then he says this, but what will you do when the end comes? See, that's what the man of God is supposed to make the people think about. What will you do when the end comes. See, I'm not here to tell you how to have a better life. That might be a waste of your time because you may not live very much longer. It might be a waste of my time because I might not live very much longer. So what needs to happen is how are you going to die? Because the purpose of the gospel is not to ensure you to have a comfortable life because if that were the end goal of the gospel, then we should cease all missions efforts into places like North Korea because we are huge jerks for doing that because they will never, the ones who are alive right now, most likely, never have the opportunity to live a comfortable life as a citizen in North Korea. So if that's the point of the gospel, then we shouldn't go tell them that. But if the point of the gospel is to teach you how to die so that you can inherit the crown of righteousness, what will you do? Because everyone will die. And what will you do when the end comes? Look at Paul's example in these three verses. He's entirely unashamed to stand before Jesus. Entirely unashamed to stand before Jesus. Why? Because he's lived a flawless life? No. Because he's going to die as a martyr and that kind of guarantees you a little bit of credit? No. Only because he has loved Jesus' appearing and you can't love something that terrifies you. And you can't love something, you can't say you love something, but then never, ever want to be around it. And we as Christians, we say, come, Lord Jesus, we want to be around that. See, Christians, we live with a mindset towards death that nobody in the world can replicate. See, an atheist fears death because that means the party's over. Avoids death because this is all there is, though secretly they're afraid because of what they don't know. See, a Muslim either avoids death because they're so terrified of Allah and his swift hammer of unrelenting and lopsided justice, or they run towards death suicidally, thinking that that's the most assured way I can have peace on the other side, is by dying as a martyr. A Hindu, she, she thinks she's eternally a slave to death because I'm just going to get recycled and rebooted over and over again, hoping maybe to find an enjoyable life. So it's kind of this ambivalence towards death. And the American, the average lost American, avoids death at all costs 
by avoiding funerals, by wasting money on products claiming to reverse the aging process and obsessing over all things youthful. But Christians, Christians, we neither fear death nor do we run headlong into it. We know it's coming and we long to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we labor faithfully, growing in Christ's likeness, engaging in good deeds and sharing the good news. That's what we do. And when God and his sovereign will orders our fleeting moments, we are filled with joy. As Paul can say here, we're filled with joy in those fleeting moments, knowing that we were meant for the other side before the foundations of the world. That's what Philippians 1.21 means. To live is Christ, but to die, to die, that is gain. That is better. That's the mindset of a Christian. What did you think finishing meant? When we came up with this title, what did you think finishing meant? The finish line is death. So the series title could have been, if we were a little more morose, could have been just how to die. That's what Paul, that's where he's ending up at the end of this book is how to die. See, all Christians and all cultures should long to have an epitaph written about them as was written about Paul for the glory of Christ forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for teaching us how to die. We thank you that we don't, we're told not to live for the here and now, that it will waste away. And not to live in fear of this future ending of this, of this life. That though it may be scary because we don't know it, we never heard anybody's firsthand account of coming back from it, that it's just the unknown. And you've, you walk us through the valley of the shadow of death all the time. And you never leave us. Your rod and your staff comforts us. And you're not asking us to go into anything that you didn't yourself Go into an experience. You experience what dying is like. And so that we can look to examples like Paul, who's really just looking to the example of Christ, to hopefully be able to say one day, Lord, that we have fought the good fight, we have finished the race, we have kept the faith. And we're not looking to that great day with any kind of pride or self-assuredness, but with leaning everything upon Christ that he will award us, not based on our deeds if we have done in righteousness, but according to your mercy, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life eternal. We thank you, and that, that that is freely available to all who will love your appearing. Father, I pray for those in this room who have yet to be able to say that they have loved your appearing. They long for the end and for you to come. They have no faith to speak of in Jesus Christ. Or grant them faith today. Let today be the day that they can look back to and say the journey began there. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. Let us rightly worship you now. In Christ's name, amen.